Hello, everyone, and welcome back. So this week, we have another special episode for you. We have two interviews, one with Nina Rao and one with Hari Kirtanadas. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I shared an interview with Miles Neal that was a part of a five-day event that we hosted on Facebook Live celebrating the launch of our journal Tarka. Well, these two interviews with Nina and Hari Kirtana are from that series. And so our conversation mainly uh, relates to the practices and the philosophy of bhakti. These interviews happened about a week before things got serious in relation to COVID-19 and everyone started to go into lockdown and, and, and staying at home. So before that happened, I was fortunate to be able to have Nina over to my house in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where she led us in a little bit of kirtan that we did live on Facebook. So it's a bit unusual to have chanting on an episode of Chitheads, but I think it's pretty special. So the way I've edited the episode today is that I've included the invocation that uh, Nina did at the beginning, so just after this, and then I've saved the kirtan um, for the very end of the episode after the interview with Hari Kirtana. So you'll have to listen to the whole thing in order to get to that kirtan at the end. So I hope you enjoy these interviews with Nina Rao and Hari Kirtana Das.
Hello everyone and welcome to this special celebratory event. We're celebrating the launch of Embodied Philosophy's new journal Tarka and so I'm joined here uh, by Nina Rao and Evan and Nina Rao is one of the contributors of this uh, first issue of Tarka. She contributed a really lovely article on the practice of Kirtan and um, it, it takes a, a look a little bit about her her life and a little bit about how she got started uh, with kirtan and bhajan practice. And then it goes and transitions into a really beautiful exploration of the practice of kirtan, some of the um, perceived obstacles and how you can sort of work through them, as well as some practical uh, kind of considerations about uh, what is included in kirtan practice in terms of instruments, a little bit about mantras, as well as um, as well as some common bhakti mantras that are generally chanted in the practice of kirtan. Uh, so, hello, Nina. Hi, Jacob. And Thanks hello, Evan. Of course. Um, so, we had talked a little bit about before we uh, went live about what we're going to talk about today. And those of you who haven't heard the interview with Nina, I did an interview with Nina um, on the Chitheads podcast about a year ago, maybe a little, no, two years ago. Wow, time More. flies. I don't know. I actually don't know. I think it's a long, long time ago. It's crazy. It was before my second album came out. So that was already two years ago now. Oh, wow. So you've had how many albums since then? Two. two. I mean, I may have had since, since I talked with you, probably another one. So I've done two in total. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so one's in the pipeline as well? No. Oh, okay. It's we'll get those mind. too. <laughs> it's still working its way, it's way yeah, out. It well, um, uh, so I, we had thought about, or we were talking about what we should talk about today, and, and one of the things that you had brought up was really talking about how um, we can bring kirtan practice to more settings. And so I just wanted to kind of open the floor to you about what you wanted to share 
uh, with regards to kirtan practice and, and some of how it relates to what you wrote in the article. Right. Well, um, you know, the Your Magazine is on bhakti, right? Mm -hmm. That's the topic. And an expression of bhakti and devotion is chanting. And my first experience, which I talk about in the article, was as a child in India, in my grandfather's home, not knowing that my grandfather actually could sing or play or, you know, any of that, or even my parents and my aunts and uncles, but it was part of the way they were raised. And though my parents wanted us to be a little bit more Western-oriented for our own sake in terms of getting a job, education, and so forth, they had had this experience of being together in community, hanging out together in a spiritual way without it being sort of formal. It's informal. It's fun. Mm, you know, you yeah. sit together, hang out, sing, chant these names that open your heart. You don't even realize how it's working. And mm. the best part is you don't have to know. Right. And, you know, there's a natural innate interest and ability in human beings to sing to keep a beat, to find a tune in your minds, and to enjoy it. Mm. Right? That's natural. And I think that to have that as a natural expression of your devotion, um, because then the rest of our lives is spent figuring out how we channel our devotion in our everyday lives, in our spiritual practice, towards other people, um, to this universal spirit that binds us together. You know, Then we start thinking a lot. But you don't have to think when mm -hmm. you chant. And what I liked about the way my first experience was is that though my grandfather could play harmonium, everybody else was just kind of sitting and clapping together and being together in a very natural way. And people write to me all the time and say, so, you know, I got a harmonium, I've been listening to your album, and I want to I wanna chant. So I said, go chant. You know, there's not, you, know, you don't need anything else. Like, we're sitting here in this space, um, and I started out in my grandfather's home. I started singing on my, home, on my own in my own house in front of my altar. Mm. And then at a yoga class, a yoga teacher said, why don't you come and sing? And so we kind of got together. And the beauty of it is, is that you don't have to buy a ticket to go anywhere. Mm. You can hang out with the people in your neighborhood, invite people to your home, have chai or not, <laughs> and, okay. um, and sing. You know, you just have to know a few mantras or even just one. Yeah. What about chanting Sri Ram Jaram for an hour? Yeah. You know, and you don't need anything to do it. That's kind of what I want to share with people. Yeah. You know, Evan um, did this for years living in Ramdas's house, and Ramdas wow. loved to hear chanting. Mm -hmm. And so, whoever happened to be coming through, he would chant, and whoever was there would join in. And mm. that's kind of how it's been for, I think, all of us in this community. And the more people listen to chanting, you know, they come across it on Spotify or YouTube, and they don't really know what it is. And But you want to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would you say to, you know, I'm just thinking of those individuals who are like, I can't sing, yeah. and it, it becomes sort of a, an embarrassment because they think they can't hold a tune. Yeah. So, you know, these people who that serves as an obstacle, what yeah. would you say to inspire those people? <laughs> well, it does help to be able to hold a tune. Because if you're going to lead, you know, you need to be able to lead people. I totally get that. So find someone who can sing a little bit. Or, you know, what people do also is, um, like probably we'll do later today in mm -hmm. this, in this um, live stream, 
is that, um, you know, I have heard people say, well, we're just going to turn on your CD and we're going to sing with it. Beautiful. So that's another way of doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but you don't really have to know how to, you don't have to be a trained musician. I'm not. Yeah. I happen to like to play a harmonium and I can play what I sing. But I can't, if somebody asked me to accompany them, I wouldn't know how. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of great musicians out there, you know, who, who are now chanting and they can play all kinds of things. Um, but you really don't have to. You don't even need, need to have a drummer. Um, you can just clap hands. You know, everybody can keep a beat if you've got a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, Kirtan is based on the repetition of mantras. So, what's the significance of mantra for Kirtan? I think, um, as far as I understand it and what I've read and I've learned from other people, uh, the, the actual word mantra, um, actually, so man comes from the root of mind, and in the Indian tradition, mind is also the connection of heart and mind together, mm -hmm. like where wisdom resides. Yeah. So it's not just something you read or know in your head, it's an understanding on the inside. And that inside is the com combination of your heart and mind. So man, tra, um, is, um, comes from uh, uh, security or securing. So it's like securing the space of your heart and mind. Mm. Um, so it's a protection in some ways. It's considered a protection. But it's also um, the innate wisdom, I think, encapsulated in a sound. Mm. And by the repetition of that sound, you can transform yourself by an inner knowing. And it's not so much a knowledge that comes from reading necessarily. I mean, I'm not, there's nothing against reading and study. All of that is external. Yes. <laughs> all of it is good. It's all a part of our getting to know ourselves, you yeah. know? Because that's what all of this is about. Yeah. It's like, what is our true nature? And these sounds are representative of our true nature. They also have other definitions. So, for example, if you say Ram, Ram is a mantra. Ram is a combination of two sounds, so Ra and Ma. And uh, Neem Karoli Baba would say when people asked him a question, or even my guru Siddhima, you know, she would say, we'd ask her a question, and she says, I only know t two things, Ra and Ma, which is Ram. <laughs> That's what, but she actually knew it, you know, yeah. she knows it. <laughs> So by invoking this mantra, we are giving ourselves, we have faith that we're giving ourselves the opportunity to open into that wisdom. But Ram also has other uh, connotations. I think this is him. I don't have my glasses on. Or that's Vishnu, right? Vishnu, yeah. So he's an incarnation. Ram is also considered an incarnation of Vishnu. Um, and so is Krishna and so forth. So then you can enter into the other stories of Ram, as in the Ramayana, for example. And then when you read the Ramayana, then you, you learn about this dharmic character and the, all the other beings in the Ramayana, such as Hanuman and Sita, who is Shakti, and their separation, and how through the flow of grace of Hanuman, they are brought back together again. And we use this as um, a sort of a navigation or a map for our own lives. Mm. So from there, you know, you can study in all the ways that you want to, but as a practice, it's very simple. Mm. You just repeat the name, keep coming back to it, no matter what your thoughts might be. 
that are coming through your mind because they will be they're there all the time we don't know where they come from how they leave us but there's a moment in every practice we do you have a meditation practice so you know that as you sit your mind is getting pulled away but the mantra will pull you back if you allow it to mm-hmm. you have to keep your mind on the mantra um, so that's the importance of mantra, I think, is which makes it different from music. Yeah. Just music. Um, you have music to help you enjoy, but it's the mantra that's doing the work on you mm-hmm. and that you're allowing to do on yourself. Mm-hmm. So when we're chanting mantras in kirtan, we don't have to be so concerned necessarily about the meaning of the words, but really about the vibratory experience is that a bit what it's about i mean you don't even have to be concerned with right that. just be concerned with the doing of the practice right. i think okay. uh, it's not important to know the name i think once you start to chant or once you hear mantras you will resonate with ones in a particular way either with the melody or without yeah and so when you get deep into mantra practice uh, for example if some people have spiritual teachers they might be given a mantra mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Neem Karoli Baba, uh, people found when they were in his presence that Ram was always, he was always chanting it. He was, it was a silent kind of utterance, mm. you know, mm. um, and or a murmuring in a certain kind of way. And it was always going on. They found that, you know, his, he was always counting it on his finger, his invisible mala. And, you know, when I asked Siddhiman, a lot of people would ask her, like, for a mantra, she would, she would say, well, I know what Maharaji chanted, so you can use that. Other teachers also give mantra. So if yeah. you go to a teacher, you can receive a mantra. There are thousands of them. In my case, I have a mantra practice of my own that I do regularly, which is called Japa. Mm-hmm. And Japa is chanting of mantra without music. Mm-hmm. And you can sit and use it as a method for meditation, it's also a place of refuge you can go to at any time in the day. You can have the mantra going on while you're chanting. You can chant the mantra while you're cooking, and mm-hmm. then you can infuse your food. You know, mm-hmm. it becomes prasad when you do that. Yeah. You can use it as a way to calm your mind before you go to sleep. Um, it has so many... Uh, I mean, for me, the greatest thing is it's, it is my practice, but it's my refuge. Yeah. I found that that's a place where I go. Yeah all the time. Um, what was your original question? Uh, no, <laughs> that's a beautiful answer. I, just, I actually have another one, though, which oh, yeah. is, you know, so there's the repetition of mantra, and then I know another practice that you do quite frequently is the repetition of the Hanuman Chalisa. Yeah. Um, so is there any kind of, is this the same sort of experience? Is there something sort of different between just the repetition of a short mantra and the repetition of a longer hymn like the Hanuman Chalisa? For sure. Uh, you know, firstly, it's harder to learn. Yeah. Um, and and actually, the true answer to that is that you don't actually have to memorize it. People want to. Yeah. <laughs> People want to because the, the, oh, the prayer resonates with them. Just as I was talking about how you choose a mantra, often it's something that resonates with you. Mm-hmm. And then they say when you're doing a mantra practice, stay with it. So when I first heard the Hanuman Chalisa, um, even though it's commonly practiced in India, I actually heard it here uh, on Krishnas's first album, and I said, "What is this?" Like I just, it felt, the, I felt the beauty of it. You know, you don't understand why you think something's beautiful; you just feel it. Right? Yeah. 
And um, I felt like I wanted to learn and I learned it. And then when I went to India uh, and I asked Sadima, I said, what seva can I do in the ashram? She said, your seva is repetition of the name. Mm. Go and chant the Hanuman Chalisa in front of Maharaji's temple. And so then, of course, it's good to know the words because then you're playing harmonium yeah. and like, you know, so then it's good to know it. But in your private practice at home, Ma would say to me all the time, she said, you know, you all know it great and you chant in a group and everything. But when you're doing a practice, read it and it'll help you focus because you're using all your senses. You speak it out loud, you're listening um, and also you're you're looking. And you're reading, and then that helps your mind. Even then, maybe you get involved in the meaning of the words. Mm -hmm. And then it helps you enter into the bhav of Hanuman. Um, bhav being the devotional mood. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Hanuman has these beautiful qualities of courage. And so when you start to read those words, you know, Hanuman is, the Hanuman Chalisa is chanted in India um, as a way of overcoming obstacles. So that could be a physical obstacle in life, like maybe you have an illness and you want to be able to um, help move through that illness. Or you have a lot of grief, or you have an exam. You know, mm. there were a lot of people who would come to and they say, Ma, help my son get good grades. And she would say, tell him to do Hanuman Chalisa every day. You know, like that, that would be the prescription. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So, Whatever is going on, whatever is going on. So Hanuman Chalisa um, became the core of my practice right away um, because of that. Um, there are other things that I like to do as well, but that is my route. And, you know, every night before I go to sleep, when I close my eyes, like, what's the last thing I want to do in the day? It's not be going over all the task lists for tomorrow and, you know, should I pack my kids' lunch for, you know, whatever it is that you think, what's the last thing you want to do? Mm -hmm. Is like try to center your mind and the thing that I go to is the Hanuman Chalisa. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing? And, you know, as you do your practice, like whatever mantra you might be chanting, you might even find that suddenly you'll re realize that it's already going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. i like suddenly be like, oh, yeah. Uh, Durga Makaja, like I'm already like yeah. in the middle of the Hanuman Chalisa. Yeah. It just yeah. happens. And so let that be the thread of our lives. Right. You know? Well, I was just, I was thinking about that just as you were describing that experience, because in my experience of, of chanting and kirtan and even japa is that sometimes you just find yourself as you're walking down the street, going about your day, that you're suddenly internally chanting. Yeah. And if you think about what's normally being repeated in the mind when you're not chanting, right. like, Oh gosh, I gotta get this done. Oh, why did I say that thing? Right. Like self-critical, sure. self-analysis, and so it's like you're being sort of re-inscribed in a certain yeah. kind of way by the divine name, right. and that there's got to be something healthy about that compared to the alternative, right? Well, they say that the name is constantly being repeated, mm -hmm. and we're by when we do in within us because that is our true nature. Those names, those mm -hmm. sounds are who we are. So if we can start to hear those names, then we are pointed in the right direction mm. to actually seeing what's being revealed to us as who we are. Okay, beautiful. So we're gonna do a little bit of chanting with all of you out there, and you're welcome to join in uh, virtually with us. But before we start, I wanted to ask Evan, um, because you, Anita had mentioned that you spent some time <clears throat> with Ram Das, who of course uh, sadly just recently passed away. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
so I read Be Here Now, and that's the famous book that he wrote, mm -hmm. or that was yeah. compiled around him. And it spoke to me in the middle section, in the art and the words. And what really spoke to me, there's a page 69, and it talks about here in love, we are together. Together, we are in love. And I thought it was a woman talking about a man because that's how my mind worked. Mm -hmm. But when I realized that it was, no, he's talking about a place that is love. Mm -hmm. I was reading it and I was in Hawaii already. And a friend of mine said, would you like to meet the person who wrote that book? And I said, yeah, sure. And wow. he said, yeah, he lives 15 minutes down the road. So we no hopped way. in the car. Ramdas was sitting alone in his wheelchair in the living room. And when I walked through the door, I could already feel it. And then I went and he turned and he smiled at me. And everything just stopped. It was like when you meet somebody with a different atmosphere yeah. where you can tell that they are coming from a very different place. Right. And the rest is history. He just, he loved me in a way that nobody had ever loved me before and showed me that love was actually in here. Like you're saying, who I, who I really was. So I spent almost the last decade just being able to be near him at the drop of a hat, living there for three years at a time. And wow was there when he died and felt out to be a supreme blessing because his form is now so big. Yeah. And his love is infused in my cells. You know, I can't get away from it. Of course. <laughs> Just like today. Why would you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very fortunate to be around such, you know, incredible beings. Definitely. Uh, Ram Das and of course Nina Rao. It's totally. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I just want to add to what Evan is saying is that, you know, Ram Das very much, um, well, what we're all experiencing now is the loss of elders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, starting with whoever our teachers might have been, uh, in my case, um, you know, I never met Neem Karoli Baba in the body, but I've had many teachers over, the, over time. But as you know, I've been with chanting with and uh, I work with Krishnas. And so my experience with Maharaji was through Krishnadas's chanting and all his stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As he is spiritually on his path, so are we all. And um, I was fortunate to meet Siddhivana. I was with her for 20 years uh, off and on. And, you know, she's my, I consider her my guru because I have this personal relationship with her. And then we've had all these amazing teachers like Ramdas. So now Ramdas has left the body. Um, Another one of our Indian guru brothers, elder brothers, KK, who was mm -hmm. always sharing devotional stories mm -hmm. with us, was very much a part of our community, has also left the body soon mm -hmm. after Ram Das did. He was uh, Ram Das's spiritual brother. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to then understand that they, everything they shared with us lives inside of us. Yeah. And they learned to trust their hearts with their elders. Mm -hmm. So we should learn to trust our hearts and in the way they trusted our hearts, like in the way that uh, Evan felt that Ramdas showed him love that he'd never felt before. Yeah. Um, Evan, can, he, you can trust that love. So, so trust that it's there and then trust in yourself. Mm. You know, elders will come and go, and then eventually you got to trust your own heart as your own elder. Right. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> suddenly, you know? yeah, suddenly you have to come to the position where yeah. you might be the elder. Yeah. Well, you are, yeah. uh, and, <laughs> and that's the thing. And, and Ramdas very much wanted to 
include youngsters in the teachings. And yeah. so one of the things that happen, and Krishnas does the same thing, is that we want young people to be involved in the practice, and which is and 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 it doesn't have to be something that's unreachable. Mm-hmm. So there are um, this Ramdas legacy immersion retreats where you can come and have Ramdas's teachings, and you can chant along with a lot of us who are still around. Uh, and young people, and there are fellowships, and all kinds of ways, and and the digital media, like we're doing today, mm-hmm. is a great way, you know, to learn. Plus, print editions. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> reading is still good. Um, that's all, you know. I just, I think it's it's wonderful that we've had a chance to meet great beings. But the more that I go to these gatherings of people, I realize that. They live inside each one of us, and yeah. you can learn a tremendous amount by just connecting with your fellow person. Yeah, thank you, Nina. That's a beautiful note to transition into our kirtan. So, um, we're going to chant for about uh, ten to fifteen minutes with Nina. And again, you're welcome to respond. Evan and I are going to be respondents, and you're welcome to chant along with us if you feel so inspired. And uh, Nina, do you have anything? Any sort of how-tos or preparatory comments that you'd like to share with the, those out there as they chant with us? No. Okay. <laughs> Just chant. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only thing I'll say is like when you feel unsure, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And now they're in their home, so no one's listening. Exactly. You don't <laughs> you have to sing how you want. No, you <laughs> but even when we're in a group, I always say to people, if you don't know what to chant, to sing louder. Right. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Chitheads podcast is brought to you by the Embodied Philosophy Wisdom School. The Wisdom School has two levels, Seeker and Sage. The Seeker level gives you access to all of the past talks from our conferences, summits, panels, and seminars. That's over 200 hours of mini-trainings, lectures, and workshops on contemplative studies, yoga philosophy, and mind-body therapy. You can start your free trial of the Seeker level by going to embodiedphilosophy.org forward slash Seeker. The Sage level of the Wisdom School gives you unlimited access to all of our past four, six, and eight module courses, as well as access to all of our future courses. We have 12 new courses launching in the Wisdom School over the next three months, April to June. And after that, we will be launching two new courses each month in the Wisdom School, one in yoga philosophy and one in mind-body therapy. And again, as a Sage level member, you get access to all of these, as well as the chance to vote on what courses will be released in the Wisdom School in the future. To learn more or to register as a SAGE-level member of the Wisdom School, just go to embodiedphilosophy.org forward slash SAGE. Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to this celebratory event. We're celebrating uh, today the launch of our journal, Tarka. I have a copy of it here. I will flash in front of the camera. Uh, This first issue of Tarka, of course, we've been publishing Tarka as a digital uh, offering for some time, just over a year or so, or maybe about actually almost two years now. 
Um, but this first issue is the first print uh, issue of Tarka. And this particular issue, we explored the concept of the practices and the teachings associated with uh, the tradition of bhakti. Um, and so today, or th actually throughout this entire week, we, I've invited a number of the contributors of this issue of Tarka to join me on Facebook Live to explore uh, some of the topics that they wrote about and, and contributed to the journal. Yesterday, as you'll hopefully remember, um, uh, we were with Nina Rao. She came over to my place here in uh, Brooklyn and we chanted some kirtan and that's still available to watch and to enjoy um, and of course Nina has a very lovely voice so uh, if you like a bit of kirtan be sure to check out that video on the Facebook page. Um, I apologize for the delay we had a bit of technical difficulties and so I had to switch computers and and Hari Kirtanadast, who is here with me today, has been very gracious and uh, patient as we've worked through these uh, various technical details. So uh, once again, thank you for joining us. And so I am going to now welcome our guest today, Hari Kirtanadas, uh, to Facebook Live. Hello, Hari. How are you? I'm well, Jacob. Thank you very much for having me here. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, thank you for being patient with uh, all of those um, frustrating uh, shifts of the technical situation. I know that you've had those that experience yourself. Facebook Live yes. is certainly a, a, an interesting animal to, to tame. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm painfully well acquainted with the traveling Willoughbys. So, uh, <laughs> I know, I know uh, how it feels to uh, be where you are, so no problem. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be an understanding company. So um, thank you, first of all, for contributing to uh, this issue of Tarka, which again, I will shamelessly plug by showing you the beautiful cover um, and the binding, if you want to see the beautiful binding as well. Uh, this issue I'm very excited about. Um, it is incredibly beautiful. And um, thanks to um, our wonderful uh, designer, who I should give a shout out to, Ryan Lemaire. Ryan Lemaire is the person who really um, many of the collage art um, that he, that is in the issue he created, and um, of course he also came up with the entire formatting. And it really is a beautiful um, work of art. And then you know beyond the art and the design is are of course the incredible contributions, including yours, um, to the issue. So I want to talk a little bit about the article. And um, and so I'm just opening it up here. Uh, let me see. I should have put a bookmark in that space so I could come up with it very quickly. Uh, let's see. Page 89. Wow. Thank God you're here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the article is called The Two Kinds of Oneness, uh, Sri Chaitanya's Synthesis of Duality and Non-Duality. Of course, duality and non-duality are really popular uh, topics today, you know, especially in spiritual circles, circles, duality is often, you know, the bad guy and non-duality, the good guy. Of course, that then, of course, collapses into a dualism of its own, which is uh, the fascinating, you know, paradox. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that and, of course, how it pertains to the work of Sri Chaitanya. But just to, uh, as a way of preface into that conversation, I just wanted to read the first three um, sentences or three to five sentences of your article because it, it starts in a very sort of lovely poetic way. 
Conventional wisdom tells us that the paradoxical language of yoga's ancient spiritual literature signifies absolute oneness, that despite only appearance to the contrary, we're all one. The speculative metaphysics of neuroscience suggests that human psychology is just an autonomic meme machine with no one at the controls, that despite any appearance to the contrary, we're all none. Western religious traditions claim that an all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present God created the world and us along with it, that despite any appearance to the contrary, we're all loved. Contemporary seekers look, looking for a coherent resolution to these conflicting messages need look no further than Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's radical concept of a chintya abeda beta tattva, the truth of inconceivable simultaneous oneness and difference. So this is a really beautiful, you know, beginning to the article. It's probably one of my favorites. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's an incredibly resonant article for you know this current cultural context which i'm sure is partly why you wrote it um because of this you know sort of like i was mentioning this maybe misunderstanding of the relationship with duality and non-duality oneness and difference you know and one kind of being castigated you know and one and the other kind of prioritized and so you know or you know valued at the expense of the other so you obviously seem to be suggesting with your article that there is sort of a middle path, as it were, or there's this way of synthesizing these two that isn't so, um, you know, doesn't default to this kind of, you know, good guy, bad guy kind of scenario. So can you talk a little bit about that and your inspiration behind writing this article? Sure. My inspiration uh, behind writing the article goes back to uh, when I first became a yoga teacher. This is now 11 years ago, a, a yoga teacher in the modern conventional sense of the word. I've been practicing yoga for uh, 48 years now, uh, more or less, uh, and lived in devotional yoga ashrams when I was uh, in my 20s. And uh, it wasn't until much later that my teachers told me, you need to find a platform for teaching and yoga, you know, teaching yoga in the modern sense became that platform. So one of my, I was speaking with one of my teachers about my experience in the yoga community and how there seemed to be a, a sort of default assumption that uh, everything, every different aspect of yoga philosophy resolved in uh, a sense of absolute oneness, that we're all one. And uh, my teacher, Ravindra Saruprabhu, uh, said to me, well, you ought to tell him that there's two kinds of oneness. And what that means is there's qualitative oneness or our shared spiritual nature uh, that we are all Brahman and a quantitative oneness that we are at the same time in a unique individual, that our individuality is validated by Vedic teachings and that we're all an infinitesimal part of an infinite complete whole. And there's a relationship between the part and the whole and that relationship in its a state of complete fulfillment is one of transcendental love. So that's where the uh, idea for this article actually has its uh, seed planted, which is about 10 years ago. Uh, and I've been speaking about this topic uh, because it is not widely known in the yoga community. And, and even in my estimation, 
the underlying philosophy of the assumption that we're all one is not really understood from the standpoint of its origins in Shankara's mm. uh, philosophy of Advaita Vedanta or absolute non-dualism. So that's where the article comes from. And that's where the name comes from. So I can't take credit for the name. This uh, is something that was given to me uh, by one of my teachers uh, for which I'm very grateful. Well, that's a great title. Um, so talk to me a little bit about Sri Chaitanya. Who was he and, and what was this teaching that is, is so central to the article? So Sri Chaitanya uh, is a, was uh, a uh, spiritual leader and also a social reformer. And these two things uh, really went hand in hand for uh, Sri Chaitanya. Uh, he appears in uh, 1486 uh, and immediately establishes himself uh, as a uh, pundit, uh, you know, very learned uh, scholar. Uh, he, his, he took his birth in the area of India that was considered like the place to be if you were a scholar. Uh, but he also democratized the spiritual culture of his time by taking the mantras that were the province of the Brahmins, the heads of the society, the religious leaders of society, taking these mantras out of the temples uh, and bringing them in out into the street, literally out into mm -hmm. the street, uh, accompanying uh, these sacred mantras with uh, musical instruments, singing these with groups of people. And that is the origin of what we currently know as kirtan the uh, communal call and response chanting of transcendental sound vibration. Uh, his philosophy comes at the end of a series of philosophical developments. So there's, there's a, a historical track that you can follow. Uh, you have the um, Vedic rituals that predate the current age of Kali Yuga, which uh, according to Vedic calculation begins about 5,000 years ago. And as we move into Kali Yuga, the Vedic rituals, the Brahmins become corrupt. The, they no longer know how to chant the mantras in order to make the sacrifices work. And the whole thing just degrades into senseless animal slaughter. The Buddha appears and ends this uh, senseless animal slaughter in the name of Vedic rituals by disavowing the authority of the Vedas altogether and coming up with an entirely new philosophy. Um, then sometime later, Shankara reestablishes the authority of the Vedas by presenting an interpretation that sounds a lot like Buddhism, namely that Brahman, the absolute truth, has no name, form, qualities, relationship with anything or anyone. And what you get is something that's nothing, because it has no qualities, that sounds a lot like emptiness. So in this way, you have like a, a, a reestablishment of the authority of the Vedas through an interpretation of the Vedanta Sutra and other Vedic literature. Ramanuja, Madhvacharya, other subsequent teachers in the Vaishnava lineage uh, go on to actually refute Shankara's philosophy of absolute oneness with varieties of dualism and uh, conditional dualism and combinations of dualism and non-dualism. And it all ends with Sri Chaitanya 
who establishes this synthesis of duality and non-duality, that you can actually have both at the same time. And he provides a rational explanation for how that is so. And my article is basically a revelation of what is Chaitanya's philosophy and, and uh, how does it make sense in relationship to these other philosophies that we generally assume to be the philosophical foundation of what we experience as yoga in the modern, uh, in our modern right. day life. So that was a very, it's an interesting, um, and what I hear you suggesting, and this was actually something that I was very recently reading as well, which um, is why it's on my mind is, is that are are you suggesting that the the that Shankara's philosophical articula articulations were were in some sense kind of a reaction against the Buddhist uh, teachings uh, that like that a lot of that um, philosophical development really was in response to what the the what the Buddhists were articulating at that time? Is that what is that partly that the way of understanding it? Yes, yes, that's uh, very much what it was. Um, the, uh, one of, uh, Shankara's accomplishments is reestablishing the Brahminical culture of the Vedas in a time and place when the Vedic culture and the Brahminical culture had been displaced, uh, by Buddhism. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the things that I really like about uh, what you've done with this issue of Tarka, uh, which is actually uh, very, very helpful to people who are interested in, in, in bhakti. We have a, an idea because we want to be inclusive and we want everybody to get along uh, that uh, there are many paths and one truth. And so there's really no difference between Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta and uh, Kashmiri Shaivism and Vaishnavism, that it all like, you know, ends up in the same place. Um, but if you think of the truth as a mountain, uh, there's lots of different ways to get up the mountain. The mountain looks different depending on where you're standing. Some paths go all the way up the mountain, like the beginner's slope, if you're gonna ski down, does not go all the way up the mountain. Uh, it, there, you can wind around the mountain, you can go straight up, it can go halfway, you can go three quarters, and it, you know, it just doesn't all land in the same place, even though there's always a relationship with the truth in some form or fashion. Um, and what you've done in the magazine is presented a lot of different angles of vision about what bhakti is and what it's, uh, how bhakti looks from these different positions. Because you know, if you're uh, a Buddhist, bhakti is going to look one way. If you subscribe to Shankara's philosophy, which is actually not exactly the same as, as Buddhism, uh, then it's going to look another way. And if you subscribe to one of the Vaishnava lineages or Sampradayas, it's going to look different from what Shankara is presenting. And one of the things I did in my article, which frankly is a very transgressive thing to do in modern yoga, is I, I actually like make, an, <laughs> I, I make an argument which is Chaitanya's argument. I'm presenting Chaitanya's argument about why Shankara's philosophy is wrong. Uh, and God, that's, that's just a terrible thing to say about anyone anywhere. Uh, I've gotten flack doing 
uh, yoga workshops where I say, well, you know, you're wrong or, you know, this is wrong and, and such like that. And, and that's right, hard to think. Can, to as take. if nothing can be wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, now, now you may think I'm wrong and that, uh, you know, what I'm saying doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's also possible. You know, yoga begins with the proposition that we're wrong. The yoga sutras begin with the proposition that you do yoga in order to see the true nature of the self reflected back in the calm, clean pool of the reflective mind. Or you could be in one of these other states of minds, and guess what? That's where you are. You think you're someone yeah. you're not. You're wrong. Uh, Arjuna doesn't want to fight at the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita and he gives all these reasons why he shouldn't fight and Krishna begins his teachings by saying you know you sound like you know what you're talking about but guess what you're wrong and the rest of the Bhagavad Gita is about what makes his arguments wrong so I don't think yeah. we should be too afraid of the idea of disagreement uh, as long yes. as it's constructive compassionate uh, comparative philosophy in order for us to find the way of relating to yoga in general and bhakti yoga in particular that resonates with us, that lights up our heart, that illuminates our intelligence, and that makes us feel like we're making a connection. Yeah. I, I really love what you're saying because, um, it, you know, because one of the things that I think, like you're suggesting, that we see a lot is this um, this kind of inability to tolerate or inability to hold space for for disagreement. And if you look back, as you're saying, if you look back at the Indian tradition and the variety of philosophical perspectives that were, that were there, debate and argument was institutionalized. And, and, and there was something elegant and beautiful about it. It was a beautiful part of the whole kind of, you know, the, the supportive space around different sadhanas, different practices. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing, and it wasn't, it didn't imply some sort of, you know, it's like disagreement equals evil or something that, that's like this weird association that we've come up with. And, and I'm, I was thinking about this recently because I'm taking this Tibetan Buddhist philosophy course and auditing it. And, and and it's you know talking a lot about obviously the Buddhists have a long history of debate and and there's this one story in this uh, Robert Thurman book that I was reading where you know it was like one you know one Buddhist encounters a a, a Charvaka or another you know and they and they have a debate that coincides with the rules of argument and you know the one had a very clearly superior argument. And so the other person sort of, you know, surrendered to the authority of that other person's position. And, and, it, and it, it just, it, it dawned on me that it, that kind of thing is so much, isn't possible really as much in our culture because people's identity becomes completely attached and integrated with their perspective. Whereas, whereas these, you know, these individuals in this, in this idealistic story were, you know, they weren't operating from the level of their identity. They were operating from the level of the principles of argumentation that would, you know, reveal the truth at a higher perspective. And it's sort of like, you know, living in accordance with a set of principles rather than accordance with like, you know, the integrity of what you think your, your ego is. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense because as soon as as soon as you in our contemporary cultural situation, 
as soon as you have the acknowledgement of the validity of disagreement, for a lot of people that creates an unsafe space because if their uh, ego is invested in a particular identity and a particular way of being or thinking about things that it feels like it's an attack on them. And yeah. the first lesson yeah. of yoga is we're not our egos. That whole sense of identity is, uh, or that attachment to that particular kind of identity is the root cause of the unsafe space that we find ourselves in in the first place. Uh, you know, I, I want to be sensitive to these kinds of things for people, but at the same time, as a yoga teacher, I feel it's my responsibility to help people understand yoga philosophy as a way to navigate through an inherently unsafe space, namely the material world, as opposed to creating the illusion of a safe space within a space that is inherently unsafe. And yeah, yeah. that's yeah. A, a tricky thing to, to do, you know, because I, you know, I don't want to scare people uh, right out of the gate before I get a chance to, you know, present a way of thinking that might not have occurred to them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is usually what happens when I introduce this idea of a synthesis of duality and non-duality. It's just a way of looking at it that most people haven't heard before, or just never considered possible. But, there's, but here's the evidence for the necessity of this synthesis. What the synthesis says, what Sri Chaitanya is, is proposing is, you can't have bhakti without duality. Love requires, the experience of love requires that there be a lover and a beloved and love itself, the uh, element that joins the two. But if you just say, uh, I'm going to become love itself, then you have to ask the question, well, love for who? Because love doesn't have any meaning without this beloved uh, uh, and the lover. So uh, what happens when you look at non-duality, absolute non-duality, is the only way you can explain it is by using dualities. You have yeah. to account for the existence of the world and our presence in it and all these individuals and this multiplicity of beings and things and places and such. And even in, as you'll read in my article, even in Shankara's philosophy of absolute non-dualism, he relies on a two-tiered conception of reality in order to explain it. So we have this persistent two-ness that keeps showing up in everyone's explanation of oneness. Yeah. And it's Sri Chaitanya's synthesis of these two that uh, allows both of them to be taken into account in a valid way that makes sense. And so that's what I tried to present in my article. Yeah, I really, I really like that. And I, um, uh, I appreciate this, this point about non-dualism because one of, one of the most frustrating things for me is that, you know, someone, it's very popular, like I was mentioning at the beginning to say something like, oh, I have a non-dual perspective or I'm non-dualist. And even to be in language, even to use linguistic categories, is to be in dualism. You can't escape it. You can't, and to be a non-dualist suggests that there are those that are not non-dualists, which is itself a dualistic statement. So it's like one of these things that you can't really <laughs> yeah. talk about du non-dualism. It's not something that can even be, it can be inferred, you know, it can be, 
it, but it's not like it's not something that you can abide in as you are in as you are involved in the world. Now that's not to say that like there is there aren't sort of transmute, transmuted levels of perception where you see the non-separableness of everything. But that's mm -hmm. not non-duality. That's a sort of you know that's a dissolving of of arbitrary boundaries in a certain kind of way. So I really like what you're saying, and 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 you know just to go back to this point about the status of argument and debate, I think it's incredibly important. And it's one of the things I actually really want to encourage. That's part of the spirit behind embodied philosophy is bringing people with different perspectives together and trying to encourage them to have conversations with each other, to not take those you know disagreements personally, and to really work towards clarity, and also to have some humility around your own perspectives, so that you can move towards you know, a, a kind of refined knowledge because it, because there is, I think, you know, where you probably you stand as well is that all this sort of like melting pot of categories and philosophical systems and an inability to look at them too, or an unwillingness to look at them too closely because, you know, you only want to see that they're all the same is leading mm -hmm. to a profound amount of confusion, I feel like. Um, yeah. in, and confusion isn't necessarily beneficial <laughs> to the yogic process. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe specifically as it relates to this idea that we're all one and 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 maybe you know how does the how does the 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 kind of principle we're all one um serve as an obstacle to the process of yoga you've already been talking about it a little bit but i'll just ask it more pointedly well, I'll, I'll elaborate on it but um you know first of all i just want to say i think you do a great job of uh bringing a variety of philosophical viewpoints together in embodied philosophy, and especially okay. in this uh, premier issue of Tarka, because if someone reads, uh, my, yeah, <laughs> if someone reads, uh, you know, one of the articles by one of the other authors, um, and then reads my article, they might think, wait a minute, I thought I was reading a magazine that was all about the same thing, and this looks like two different things. You know, if you had swapped authors, uh, and their articles. Uh, like, uh, if you had had uh, Pranada Kamtwa uh, write about the Narada Bhakti Sutras, uh, then you would get a very different conception of what the uh, Narada Bhakti Sutras uh, are telling us from the uh, uh, article that's there. Uh, uh, I forgot. Marie, uh, Marcy ba Braverman Goldstein. Yeah, now I know Marcy. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's, so she's got one perspective uh, on that particular uh, scripture, uh, you know, and I know Pranada would have a, a different one. Um, so the fact that you've got these varieties of points of view in this one magazine about presumably the, the same topic is, I think, a, a wonderful service to readers uh, in order to uh, mitigate some of this confusion because it makes clear that there are varieties of uh, conceptions of bhakti and uh, what the ultimate goal is um, and therefore what the purpose of the practices are and in understanding what the relationships are. And those are the three different categories of Vedic knowledge, knowledge of relationships, knowledge of practices and knowledge of the ultimate goal. So from the standpoint of your question about how does the idea of oneness, uh, how can it be an obstacle to- uh, Like absolute oneness, I meant to say that- the, Yeah, absolute yeah. oneness. So- Yeah. Um, 
Well, one way is that um, if you're if you're thinking that the absolute truth is absolute oneness, then what does that say about relationships? Well, it kind of negates them. Uh, it it invalidates relationships because if the only truth is absolute oneness, then relationships are are an illusion. Uh, mm-hmm. And the whole idea of a you and a me who could have a relationship is an illusion. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? Um, well, if we say, well, the illusion is all the dance of the divine, that somehow one has become many and I'm the one, and now I appear to be many, uh, then you know, on, on the upside, we can see in terms of social justice, what is the basis of our equality? Uh, I use the same example all the time. You know, if I play a tennis match against Venus Williams, uh, I'm going to touch the ball. The ball's going to hit my racket when I serve. And that's it. I'm not touching the ball again uh, because we're not equal. Uh, And you can go on and on and on about all the ways that materially people are simply not equal. Some people are faster. Some people are stronger. Some people are smarter. Some people are richer. Some people are more powerful. There's just all this variety of material inequality. So in what sense is it a uh, self-evident truth that all beings are created equal? Well, that's a spiritual statement. The Declaration of Independence is based on a spiritual proposition that uh, on the level of the soul, we are equal. And that's uh, qualitative oneness. We're all made of the same spiritual stuff. And so in that way, the idea of oneness becomes... Uh, an asset to understanding what is it that uh, ties us together and provides a basis for uh, understanding what uh, justice should be. Um, On the other hand, if you have this negation of the world and it's just all a big illusion and relationships are all an illusion, it's just the dance of the divine, then it can potentially provide for a rationalization for you to just do whatever you want. And then what you end up doing is just engaging in material life that doesn't actually burn up any of your karma or elevate your consciousness or do anything except provide you with a rationalization for enjoying the senses of the material body. And you actually move away from the goal of yoga because the first lesson of yoga is we are not these temporary material bodies or senses of identity composed of mind, intelligence, and ego, we're something beyond that. And so, you know, if our uh, philosophical understanding degrades into a rationalization for material life, we end up going nowhere uh, or, and, and, you know, spinning our wheels here in the material world doesn't really solve any of our problems on a spiritual level. Yeah. So, so it, can, it can go both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that nuance. Um, All right, Hari. Well, we have gone for about 30. I said I wanted to keep it close to 30. So is there anything else that you want to share either about bhakti, your experience with bhakti, the article more specifically, um, anything else that would be a nice kind of bring it home uh, moment? (laughs) Yeah, the... um... As far as the teachings of Sri Chaitanya go, um, the 
the conclusion, the philosophical conclusion is uh, realized in the uh, practice that he recommended, which is mantra meditation. And uh, specifically, uh, communal mantra meditation in the form of kirtan. He specifically established the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra as the practice by which theoretical knowledge becomes realized or experiential knowledge. Um, and this mantra, uh, I mentioned a little bit about it at the close of the article. You know, it's both a, a prayer and a fulfillment of that prayer uh, because it's a request for union with God through the medium of service motivated by nothing but love. And because of a non-duality, namely the unity of the Supreme Person with the Supreme Person's names, that is to say the Supreme Being is absolute, not relative. So it's not like the sound vibration of the mantra refers to something else, but rather the sound vibration of the mantra and the person or persons in this case, Hare being the feminine aspect of divinity, Krishna being and Rama being the masculine aspect of divinity. The names in the Hare Krishna mantra are not different from the persons who are one person in two, uh, to which they re refer. And therefore, uh, the uh, chanting of the mantra means union with the persons that you are chanting to. So you get this experience of simultaneous oneness and difference in the very practice of chanting the Hare Krishna mantra. So I would like to, um, you know, encourage people who are interested in the experience of this radical philosophical idea to try the practice that Sri Chaitanya has recommended, uh, namely the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. That's great. Thank you, Hari, for ending with uh, a practice note because that I, sh I that kind of um, uh, didn't occur to me to bring that in, and that's an important aspect of it. Is you know how do we embody uh, and sort of imbibe these you know seemingly very abstract teachings? Of course, we love that sort of stuff, you and I. Uh, but yes. at the end of the but day, it's not you know, just so armchair philosophy. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. So um, that's very important. So thank you for for. Um, uh, closing with that. Sure. So thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, this will be available. Um, uh, it'll be a stay on Facebook. You can watch it um, again if you'd like. Uh, it will also be on YouTube and we'll also be um, republishing it as a podcast episode. Um, I just wanted to mention uh, one last time the new issue of Tarka, which is available in print like here I have here and also as a digital issue. Um, and you can and you can subscribe to the entire um, uh, s uh, series of them, or as first you can subscribe to an annual subscription and get four per year, um, or you can get just a single issue. Um, and you could do that at embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. Again, that's embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. And I am just going to see before we close if we happen to. Have any questions? I didn't mention it before, so people probably weren't even thinking in that way. But I guess it's worth um, checking out. Questions? All right. No. 
we didn't. That's great, though. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And if you have any questions for me or for Hari, you can leave them in the comments if you're watching this at a later time. And, uh, and, uh, and I'll keep an eye on it and let Hari know, and perhaps he can chime in. Uh, uh, the... I'll be happy to look for questions. Um, and uh, if uh, audience members uh, can tag me in their question, or uh, Jacob, if you, can, if you see something that I haven't gotten to yet and you want to tag me, uh, if it's a question that's directed to me, I'm always happy to uh, receive questions and engage in dialogue about this sort of stuff. This is my idea of a good time. Yeah, super good time. So, Harry, why don't you tell us maybe something, um, maybe how people can get a hold of you or how people can learn from you and anything you have coming up if you'd like to share. Sure. Um, my website is harikirtan.com. Uh, H-A-R-I-K-I-R-T-A-N-A. -A. Uh, I have a free Bhagavad Gita class every Thursday night. I'm heading into the home stretch with that, but anyone who subscribes to this free class uh, can get access to the recordings, which as of this Thursday will be 100 classes on wow. the Bhagavad Gita. I'm going to actually be able to finish it up with 108 classes. I'm so happy it worked out like that. That's crazy. Um, that's so amazing. you'll have uh, uh, access to that. And I also have um, a free online master class called Sanskrit Made Simple for Yoga Teachers. That's also right on my homepage. So if you'd like to check that out, um, it's free. Awesome. All right. So check out hari-kirtana.com for more and all those exciting free offerings you have. That's amazing. All right. Thank you so much, Hari, for joining me today. And we'll see you soon. Jacob, thank you very much. It's always great to talk to you. <laughs> so I thought, um, let's do a, a chant to the goddess. Yeah. Uh, it was International Women's Day, or whatever, yesterday, right? And, um, and today's a new moon day. A new moon day. The thing, full is moon. it a full moon full day? Moment. Full yeah. moon day. Full moon today's full moon? Yeah. Okay. Starting okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Of, for me, you know, the mother is symbolized by the moon, and for lots of reasons, a lot of it is my connection with Sadhima as well. But I think it's important to also remember that divine feminine lives in all of us. You don't have to be in a woman's body for that to be the case. It's just she is the compassionate <laughs> being. And our spiritual practice is to develop compassion. So this chant is to Saraswati, and Saraswati is considered the goddess of learning, of art, of music. But also in my tradition, in my family heritage, she's also known as Sharade Devi. Sharada Devi is a temple in the south of India. And there, Saraswati is depicted with a mala and scriptures in her hand, and um, also with you know the veena, which is a musical instrument, and so on. But my understanding of her is the goddess not only of knowledge but really wisdom and discernment. So for the best actions, the most compassionate actions. And a way to live our lives that actually feels right. So I sang this chant 
to Sigima many years ago, and it's so the words are Namastasye, Namastasye, Mata, Mata, Saraswati, Saraswati, Sharade, Sharade, Devi, Devi. So Namastasye means to bow. Saraswati is Saraswati. Sharade Devi is another name for her. Mata means mother. And the next few lines are Narayani Om. Narayani Om. And that's what we'll chant.
Thank you.